Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Good morning. My name is Nick Gillespie, uh, one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, uh, and I get to continue us in this, continue us in this series called The Good Life. Um, I was in the second grade, okay, I was in the second grade, and it was the recess at second grade, and there was a group of us who had gathered around to watch a handstand competition between two young ladies who were in my grade. Uh, now, it wasn't a pure handstand competition. It was where you put your hands on the ground, you put your feet up against the wall, and the competition was who could stay up the longest, right? Now, one of the girls was Gretchen. She was fine. And the other girl was the love of my life, Michelle. I mean, you, I'm not married to Michelle, but at that time, she was the love of my life. I was an adoring admirer of Michelle. I thought she was the prettiest girl in our whole school for like over a year. Um, however, I never talked to Michelle, I was too shy. So I just admired her from the cross room. But in this case, I was admiring her competing against Gretchen in this handstand competition. And so, you know, ready, set, go, everything's off. You know, we'll see how long everyone can go. And Michelle's feet began to waver first against the wall. She begins to tip to the side. And one of her friends steps forward and balances Michelle with her hands and then steps back. And I'm standing there and I'm like, does anyone not see what just happened? There is cheating happening in this competition. And sort of this righteous indignation flared up inside of me in two ways. One, Michelle was pretty unpopular. And so I'm like, that's not fair that she gets an advantage because she's pretty unpopular. And we're all blind to that. Secondly, no woman of mine is a cheater. And so I stepped forward and did what any normal sane person would do. And I shoved Michelle down to the ground. I mean, that's only fair. She cheated. Anyways, Miss Levin didn't see it the way I saw it. She grabbed, my ba- grabbed me by the arm and said, what are you doing? And I said, she's cheating. And then she didn't really sympathize with me and put me in the timeout bench for the rest of recess. And so what I've had a hard time learning since the second grade is when there is injustice, when there's injustice, and I insert myself as the balancer of the injustice, of the balancer of justice to make things right and righteous, I actually create more chaos than peace. I actually bring more hurt than healing. And that's just a reality of something that I've experienced in my life. And I think if we probably were to look at our own lives, we see the same things. As human beings, we are uncomfortable with injustice, we're uncomfortable with oppression, and yet when we begin to act upon our world, when we begin to try to figure out how is it that we make it right, well, in a moment, it might seem right, right? In the moment, it was like, yes, Michelle was going down, I just helped her in the process. But in reality, though, when I put my hands to work and trying to create balance and justice, I oftentimes create more hurt and pain, chaos and frustration along the way. And so we're back in the uh, chapters four to six in Ecclesiastes. We took a look at this last week uh, where we looked at power, how God has given us power, how we use this power, uh, how we were meant to use this power in order to change and affect our world and creation to bring about the will of God. And as human beings, how it is 
we default to a different form of power, oftentimes trying to assert our own will rather than the will of God. But today, and so last week's sermon was called the power paradox. This week's is uh, the paradox of coercion, meaning as I try to make the world the way that I want it to be as I coerce it and other people are trying to coerce it against me, there's a power struggle. And particularly those who are uh, with less power are oppressed or experience injustice from the hands of others. Kind of the bottom line is that when power is used wickedly, it sucks the life out of the good life. When power is used wickedly, it sucks the life out of the good life. And so the author, the preacher, addresses this in Ecclesiastes 4 and 5. Read along with me on the screen. He writes this. He says, again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there's no one to comfort them, the oppressed. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better both is he who has not yet been been, and has not seen the evil uh, deeds that are done under the sun. He continues in chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a providence the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there is yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. All right, so the preacher is perplexed as he sees oppression. He is grieved, he is distraught, and we might even say it seems like he is hopeless. Now, when he says oppressions here, he's pretty generic. He's not specific in any sort of way. And so as we can imagine our life or our world, yes, on the one end you have, and I know that there are those of us in the room who have experienced deep trauma at the hands of another for potentially a long season of our time. Abuses that we could name on end that have scarred us, that have changed us for life. And that's a reality as we go through this text. But on the, other day, on the other hand, we have garden variety oppressions. You know, everyday occurrences or every week occurrences where it feels like we're slighted, we feel like we're overlooked, we feel like we don't get the credit that's due to us. Maybe this is a promotion at work. Maybe this is an acknowledgement at work that you're currently doing. It could be something as simple as, man, I want my kid on that baseball team. And because I'm not on the in-network, if you are a, a baseball parent, you know what this is like. I'm not on the in-network. My kid doesn't get a chance, right? And there's that sort of thing. We feel like someone has power leverage over us, and they use that to keep us from seeing the good life happen in our life or the world around us. It's unfair the way that it is. So today, this morning, we're going to be cerebral, all right? We're going to take a look at scriptures and how it is that we respond to oppression while being very, very mindful uh, that oppression happens in all, all different forms. And again, whether it's, it's deep and grieving and trauma-inducing or whether it's, it's things that we just kind of, again, occur on a weekly or daily basis, they all matter to us. They all affect us. They all anger us or upset us or again, make us feel like we're unable to attain the good life 
that we were meant to have, unable to act and affect our world in the way that we desire to. Now, is he using hyperbole here? Uh, that it would be better to not exist than to exist with oppression. Um, maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole. Maybe there's a little bit of realism there. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm like two hours into like the 24-hour flu and I'm like sprawled out on the bathroom floor, I'm like, if this is my life, just take me now, God. Like, this is horrible. Like, when we're in the midst of like pain and suffering and we know that we're in it and we can't see the other side of it, we're like, if this is my lot in life, like, I'm just done, you know? Bring me to the celestial place where you are, God. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole here, but I do think when we are in that place of pain, uh, we do kind of wonder, like, man, like, I, you know, maybe non-existence would be better than existing in this. Um, and it's, it's, it is hard, it is, it is grieving, and it is hopeless. The preacher here is also taking a little bit of a perspective, as we just read, kind of of an atheist or an agnostic kind of if there is no God, if there is no redeemer or savior in this situation, then what would be the point of living in an unjust society? If the oppressed continue to be oppressed by those who have power, then like what's it for? What, where is their goodness? And so in this sense, he's not necessarily looking at or the world at or with a savior. He's looking at it as just humans interacting with humans in this kind of paradox of coercion, this power struggle that is happening in our society. And thirdly, we see that he is uh, distraught that the fact that those who are oppressed have no comforters. They have no one beside them. And again, if we reflect on our own life and times where we have felt oppressed or hurt or abandoned, we have that sense of isolation and aloneness. Again, on the one hand, with trauma, trauma that leads to shame, I'm uniquely broken. I am unworthy in a unique sense of other people. I am less of a human being. In the sense of experiencing unfairness, we wonder, does anyone not see my plight? Does anyone not see what is going on? Does anyone not see what is happening? And so he is upset that these people would be alone, isolated, they would be ashamed where they're at, and there is a hopelessness in that. So this is kind of the tension that we're in as we consider oppression and injustice uh, around us. Now, last week we talked about kind of two different types of power usages. On the one end, sort of this make it so, like that endowed with power, and again, this is more last week's sermon, you can listen to that if you want, if you haven't yet. Um, when I have power, I can act upon the world in, in a sense in which I'm trying to bear my will into the world. I'm trying to make it so. And on the other hand, there's the power that is kind of scriptural, which is this submissive power, this let it be. And so when we are looking at this, we are wondering, all right, how is it that people who are oppressed, people who are experiencing injustice, or I'm experiencing injustice, how is it that I go from a place of powerlessness to a place of power? And I can move either in a make it so kind of way, or I can move in a let it be kind of way. And that's kind of where we are at. How is it that we move, how do we move from a place of powerlessness to a place of power? Dan Allender, who's a leading uh, Christian uh, counselor, writer, speaker, author, uh, he mentions that there's two different sort of saviors that we look to 
when it comes to being oppressed or becomes uh, to have uh, experiencing injustice in our life, particularly uh, trauma. And he says that we either, kind of through this make it so sort of way of acting on our world, we either look for pleasure and escape or through the authority of another. So we're in a place of powerlessness. When we're in a place of powerlessness, we look to numb our pain through pleasure and escape or we look to try to have a sense of power by aligning ourselves with another authority. Let me give you an example. So we all experience a global trauma of COVID. That was something that we all have collectively shared together. All right? That is something that we all have in common. Uh, there's a lot of people who would say that it was a trauma. It significantly, fundamentally changed us, it created us, and put us in a state of fear and helplessness and hopelessness. And so what was our response? Uh, was I the only one that uh, binged on Netflix? Maybe, maybe, you know? Was I the only one that maybe ate too much? Or maybe got hyper-obsessed with working out and trying to get super uber fit, right? We went to pleasures as a way of numbing or distracting ourselves from the pain of the things that we could not control. So we tried to distance ourselves from that pain, finding and seeking pleasures and things that would distract, would numb, or maybe momentarily satisfy us from the pain we experienced from the trauma that we were in. And again, there's a lot of different ways that we can pursue illicit pleasure in order to numb ourselves. That's one savior. The other one is through the authority of another. Now, I don't know about you, but there was plenty of politicians who had their opinions of how they could save you from the pain of COVID. And we don't have to go down the road, but, you know, those of us who wanted masks, the politicians promised us more masks. And those who didn't want masks, we had our politicians who promised us less masks, right? And they created these mini camps, interest groups, communities, where they promised you something if you would follow them. If you would vote for them, or if you would join their group, or maybe join their social media platform, and chat and follow and subscribe along their path, right? So there's a way in which we as human beings, we're a place where we feel powerless. There are uh, charismatic people, charismatic groups that promise us hope in the midst of our hopelessness and say, if you align yourself with us, then we'll save you from your misery. We will give you a power that you do not have currently. If you look historically, and again, I'm not a historian, but if you look historically post-World War II, there was this rise of these charismatic leaders, and they're not all bad. Billy Graham would be one of them. They're not all bad per se, but there was like an obsession with these charismatic leaders, these charismatic interest groups that said, hey, we live in a chaotic world, and if you want less chaos, if you want more peace, then come and join our group. The church has functioned this way. The church, at times, has said, come, you feel oppressed, you have trauma in your life, you have hurt and brokenness. We kind of had that, right? We all say we are broken, we are sinful people. Come into our church, align yourself with us, follow us, and you know what you get? You'll get some power, you'll get some position, you'll get some dignity, you feel like you've lost along the way. But the problem is that if it's a make-it-so kind of power structure, it's coercive. You now have to sell your heart and your soul in order to belong. 
And once you disagree with that group or that charismatic person or that leader or whatever, you then are thrust out again outside of that. Because why? We're looking for a savior who can't really save. They promise us things, or this leader promises things, this institute promises things they can't fully deliver on, or if they do, we have to obey them. So that's this make it so kind of power structure in regards to what do we do when we are powerless, when we are oppressed, when we experience injustice. If you look at any interest groups, social interest groups you will read, maybe on their websites, they have a vision for their world that they want to see happen. And it's their vision for the world. It's not one that really brings true balance. It's one that sees, regardless of whatever power might resist them, they will overcome that power in order to see their perfect world, their ideal world happen. But that's not where we live in. We live in the place where it's God's world. God will see his will done on this earth. Eventually, in his timing, that is the outcome. So there's this really interesting verse in uh, verse 9 of chapter 5. In the Hebrew, it's hard to translate. And uh, kind of theologians, commentators think that there's two different ways to take it. I wonder if maybe if we should take it both the same way. You know, he talks about, hey, there's high officials or watched by higher powers and yet higher ones. And then in verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And so what translators think is, you know, is the preacher trying to say, regardless of what power is over us, whether it's a good power or an oppressive power, what power is over us, there is yet one over them and one over them until we finally see at the very top, it's God alone who is in heaven. And again, last week we looked at that. That was in chapter 5, verse 1. So there's a sense of like, whatever power is over us, oppressing us, we have to realize that that power is submitted to yet a higher power. Ultimately, God is one that's in charge. And that power only has power because it's under God's. So there's a silver lining there, all right? Whatever injustice we experience, they don't have the final say, God does. But then there's this sort of, uh, a king committed to cultivated fields. If you read different translations, it's taken quite a bit different. What, what, we, what potentially is that the author is getting at is, even if you're in a place of oppression, even if you're in a place where there is injustice, you still, in your life, can create human flourishing. Regardless of how you are perceiving your moment, your season, your life, whatever is over you, whatever you wherever you feel hope, hopeless or helpless, Yet, even in the midst of that, there's the ability to create human flourishing in that. And that's what we have to wonder, might that be true? That even when it feels like someone is keeping me from the good life, from living this empowered life of doing the things that I think God has made me to do and wants me to do, might I still, even if I'm oppressed and suppressed, still be able to live my life, affect this world to create human flourishing? And that is where I think when we get into the scriptures, we can see that. Now, we talked last week about this idea of submission, that real godly powers run through the line of submission. Again, looking at last week's uh, definition, submission is a creative response to the will of another. So submission under the make-it-so type of power structure is evil. If I just submit to those who are trying to make their will done on earth, that is 
evil. That's an evil definition for submission. That's not good news. But good news is a creative response, meaning that I have my humanity, I have my dignity, I have my God-endowed powers and abilities, that when I respond to those that are in authority over me, to their will, I have choices and ways that I can affect my world. And ultimately, our submission, when we think about higher powers, ultimately our submission is to God and God alone. That regardless of whatever is over me, whatever injustice I experience, whether that's a person or institution or uh, however that might look, ultimately, my submission is to God and God alone. And so our big idea this morning is this, that we submit to God and it's he that supplies a good life. So I don't submit to the one in an earthly sense that's over me. I submit to God who's yet higher still, looking to him to supply the good life, even if there's momentary injustice, seasonal injustice whether that be the garden variety, weekly type, or the type that feels like it's dramatically life-altering and even life-ending. So let me tell you a story from the scriptures to kind of help unpack this a little bit. Uh, king David didn't start out as a king. Uh, he actually started out as uh, a, a farmer's boy. He was the little runt brother of a whole bunch of brothers. And so as you can imagine, if you have any family, right, you know, the eldest son, the oldest boys are the ones that are, you know, doted all over by dad and mom, you know, future, you know, quarterback of Ohio State, that sort of thing. And the younger brother's just sort of like forgotten, right? He's just running around doing like whatever. Uh, David is so forgotten that when Samuel, who's a prophet of the Lord, comes looking to anoint the next future king of God's people, Israel, he comes to uh, David's uh, father, Jesse, and it's like, bring your sons before me. And one by one, he brings his sons forward. And Samuel's hearing from the Lord, none of these sons. And he looks at Jesse and he's like, do you not have any, any other sons to bring before me? And Jesse's like, oh, I got like the little guy. He's like out watching the sheep. I guess I'll bring him in too. But there's no way it's that guy, kid, right? Um, but it is. Like it is David. He was the runt little brother of all these brothers. He was an afterthought. He becomes a servant of King Saul at the time. He is personal musician. And it's at this time, too, that Israel was in a major battle with their arch nemesis, the Philistines. And we, you might be familiar, quite familiar with the story of David and Goliath. No one steps forward. David is willing to, without armor, goes out. He kills Goliath and becomes overnight a celebrity. Now, it seems like a rising star, right? David's getting all the power. Everyone's jumping on his, you know, Twitter handle and following him, you know, looking at his Instagram posts of him over Goliath with like his head held up, you know. But while it's all good, it seems like in the sense of his popularity, it invokes the jealousy of King Saul, who is in power. And Saul who wants to keep not just the kingship for himself, but for his sons and his grandsons. And so Saul twice tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Like, David's playing music, serving the king, and Saul, out of anger and jealousy, throws a spear at David and tries to pin him to the wall. David comes to the conclusion, Saul's trying to kill me. And Saul's son, Jonathan's like, what do you mean? You know, he's like, no, I'm pretty sure he's trying to kill me. And so David flees, okay? Not just, the, you know, the castle, not just the city, but the entire country. He flees his family. He flees everything that he knows. He flees his people. He flees his family, 
And he goes to live and wander out into the wilderness, out into the deserts. Vulnerable, harassed, helpless. He's got a band of men, loyal, faithful men to him that go out and follow him. But he's wandering around. If you read this through First and Second Samuel, I mean, you know, he's trying to, you know, as he's trying to flee Saul, he's also trying not to be captured and killed by the Philistines who also don't think very highly of him. And so he's trying to make sure that he can kind of stay alive. He's on the lamb, not for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. He's on the lamb for four years. For four years, the king is strategically seeking out his life, taking the army of Israel out to get David. And twice, twice, whether it's God or the situation, however you want to interpret it, Saul is at the hands of David, where David has the ability to end his own misery. He's got weapon in hand, Saul unable to defend himself. And twice, David puts the weapon down and walks away. Twice. David's men, those who followed him, are like, kill Saul. Get rid of the pain. Get rid of the one who's harassing you. Take Look, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. Read the situation, David. End him. And twice, David says, justice is not for me. It is not my right to take the one that God has placed in power and authority. Our world does not know that. I don't know that. I want to push Michelle down, you know? Like, I, I just don't. Like, I, don't, I could tell you story after story of where I want to, I see, God, all right, the situation's here. God, you want me to right the wrongs. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't right the wrongs. He waits for God to do that. But yet, even beyond that, David doesn't just live helplessly. He continues to pursue human flourishing, even in the midst of running in the wilderness and trying to escape uh, his oppressor. And then even when David does become king, Rather than using his, his power to consolidate his own power, to consolidate his kingdom by getting rid of the entire line of Saul, he actually reestablishes Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, and reestablishes Saul's estate under Mephibosheth, the rightful heir. Not something that Mephibosheth deserved or earned, not something that Saul certainly didn't deserve or earn, but David had so put his life in the hands of God to trust that God would make unjust just, make wrong right. What he saw was when he had the ability, he would create human flourishing in his life. This is the creative response to submitting to the will of God. A creative response to submitting to the will of God in the midst of injustice and oppression. I think that there's something of a pattern here that emerges, and you don't have to just read David's story. You can read Joseph's story, Moses' story. There's lots of different stories you can read where we see something happening. One, in the scriptures, God always gets to be the deliverer. God is always the savior. No power in this world, no pleasure in this world gets to deliver or save us. Only God gets to deliver us from injustice and oppression. Secondly, Only God gets to right the wrongs. Only God has the right to right the wrongs. 
And thirdly, we obey God by pursuing human flourishing. We are to obey God and pursue human flourishing. Paul in Romans 12, I would say, sums it up well, our attitude towards injustice and oppression. He says this. He says, don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. God says, I'll do the judging. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, go get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Justice is God's. He will take care of it for you. And we are in response to bless. And again, we talked about that last week about what this word bless really means. Where we think we are powerless, God actually gives us power to create human flourishing. I think we see this also very much in our Savior, Jesus Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, he was in the garden with his friends. Peter was right there with him. And a band of Roman soldiers come armed to the teeth to take Jesus onto an unfair, unjust trial. And Jesus knows what's coming. And Jesus wonders at the army that's approaching him, why are you coming armed? You think I'm going to fight you? Peter takes his sword, pulls it out of his sheath. He lobs off a soldier's ear. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, we don't handle it that way. That's not how this goes. He heals the Roman soldier. He hands his hands out and goes with his oppressors. He goes into this sham of a trial. And as a young Christian, not that it doesn't bother me now, I've just better understood, but as a young Christian, especially in my early 20s, it angered me what Jesus didn't do in the midst of this trial. This untrial was unjust. Witnesses are coming forward. They're Uh, testimonies don't align. They're making up lies about Jesus. Jesus is being physically hurt, spat upon, humiliated, degraded, and it irritated me that Jesus never spoke up for himself. He never called out injustice in the midst of this trial. It angered me because in my own flesh, in my own heart, when there is injustice, I want to speak out, and I want to speak up, and I want to respond in that way. Let's say what's true. But Jesus remained silent, this creative response to the submission of his heavenly father. Because he trusts that somehow God had the good life on the other side of his own oppression. Well, as the story goes, Jesus goes all the way to the cross. He's not a criminal, but he's hung and killed as a criminal. And yet it's even in that death, in that death, that God brings life from that. That from that death, that God renews life. And we as human beings, that should be a mystery to us. How does God in death bring life? Ecclesiastes, the preacher, ends at death. If you're oppressed, and that's all that you have is oppression, you might as well not exist. But with our God, who does miracles, who lives in the mystery, is able to bring life out of death in the midst of our suffering. Not because we, we overpower or overcome, 
but because through that suffering, he produces life. It says this by Paul in Philippians chapter three. Uh, Sorry, it's not on the scripture. Sorry, I didn't have that as a slide. You can listen to it. Philippians chapter three. He says, the righteousness that I have come from knowing Christ, that comes from knowing Christ, is the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. In our sufferings, we find a comforter, a savior. As we participate with Christ, we are not alone. We are comforted with Christ. We are with him. Someone is in it with us, our savior. And what we perceive to be death actually is produced for resurrection, eternal life. So our big idea this morning as I close is that we submit to God and he is the one. God is the one that supplies a good life. Let me pray. God, uh, we might marvel at this. I know that I still do, that there are absolutely times in my life where I see that you have intervened and you've delivered me even in the midst of helplessness and hopelessness. And yet, God, the next injustice battle, the next time that I feel oppressed, I am so quick to uh, take up arms and defend myself and try to right the wrongs. But God, you invite us to lay the sword down, to put it away, and to believe that you are the one that can deliver us through death into true resurrection life. That through the history of the church, the martyrs of the church, Lord God, they have gone to their crosses and their graves with hearts full of joy and smiles on their faces because they knew that this life didn't end and whatever could be taken away from us here because we knew that you were giving us something greater and you do give us something greater in the life to come. So God, as we move out into our week, as we look to our society, would we not give our lives over to false saviors and illicit pleasures, but we give our hearts fully devoted to you, trusting that you will deliver us. Amen. So we will now enter into our time of worship and partaking of communion. Uh, Communion this morning should have that sense of Jesus sat at table before he suffered, before he was taken, before he was objectified. And he said, this is my body. I give it to you. And it is a body that is broken, that you might be healed. And this is my blood. I will shed it for you. Because in the shedding of my blood, there is your healing. And so we'd be mindful that God is always our savior, our deliverer, the one who always gives his whole life for us, that even when we feel powerless, it is he that supplies us with power. I want to end by reading the third stanza of a poem written by Anne uh, Bronte. It says, he doeth all things well. She writes this, if thou shouldst bring me back to life, more humble I should be, more wise, more strengthened for our strife, more apt to lean on thee. Should death be standing at the gate, 
Thus should I keep my vow, but Lord, whatever be my fate, oh, let me serve thee now. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.